Our scripture for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and I'm going to be reading verses 19 through 31. Jesus is telling a story. Listen now to the Word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is an unusual passage. Guide us as we think upon it, as we think upon the topic of hell and the challenge it is to to us, to all of us. Guide my words, guide all of our hearts as we stand before your word, your world, and seek your leading. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's see if you know this well enough. God is good all the time. So, then what about hell? How can God be so good, so loving, so righteous, and still there's hell? No, think about this. There's been a a change in our world in just the last few generations. For for thousands of years, it it seemed like a a primary motivation for faith was the, the fear of God's anger leading to hell. And I think the catalyst of the great awakening of the 18th century was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That, that's kind of that notion. But now, 
These days, in those last few generations, it's, it's almost, almost as if the question has completely turned around. Where we used to stand in fear of God's judgment of us, now we judge God. Now we're angry at God for the unrighteousness and, and the meanness of condemning people to hell. And angry at those who, who think that he would. After all, thinking that way must mean that you think you're going to heaven and think you're better than those who are condemned to hell. Now, let me up front say I, I don't believe this. I don't believe that that's correct. And I've come to see that every time I focus on this issue of hell, whether it be to preach a sermon such as this one or for something else, it, it seems like it would be such a downer. But it has actually been an incredibly encouraging of and, and clarifying for my faith and for what life really is all about. And I'm going to use Tim Keller's outline on this topic to sum up the three things that we come to see in that doctrine of hell that have clarified and encouraged my faith. And all these points are about hell being crucial Crucial to understand our own hearts, my own heart. Crucial to live in peace. And crucial to understand and to know the love of God. First of all, hell helps us to understand our own heart. James K.A. Smith, the Calvin University philosopher, wrote a book called you are what you love. He wrote it just in 2016, less than 10 years ago, and it's been, an, it's been an influential book to me, and I recommend it. And the idea is clear in the title. The things that we love make us who we are. Honestly, it's been a theme through all these questions of our faith sermons that it is a fundamental need for us to be loved and to love. And this idea comes right from it. We are what we love. The things and the people we love and are loved by make up our identity. In our passage, the rich man isn't even given a name, but the poor man is, is Lazarus. And here's the idea. The rich man already had all the things in his life that he cared about. He cared about his wealth and his status. That's what gave him his identity. And now those things are gone. And, and there's no more him left. He doesn't even have a name because the things that gave him his identity are, are gone. Have you known people? who have lost everything that gave them their identity. It could be anything. Wealth, power, beauty, strength, health, children and, and loved ones. And, and when those things are gone, it, it can be like there's nothing left of them. And you beget, begin to get a sense of what hell is. But what's the alternative? 
Yesterday, my, Veronica and my wife and I took a day and we went on a ferry to Bainbridge Island and we had a wonderful day. And among the things that we did was we went to my grandmother's grave at a small cemetery on the island. And, it, and her, her plot was all overgrown, but we could find it and, and others around it that seemed to be her parents and, and siblings. She lived from 1883 to 1973. I was 10 years old when she died. And, and right near them, there were two much older stones that were wearing away. And one of those dates that we could just make out was 1817. And we couldn't tell much else that was on the stone. As is, it was as if they were just simply fading away. All that we love, that makes us who we are, can be taken away at any time, and, and, and those things will be taken away eventually, especially if you consider eternity. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish Christian philosopher, wrote a book called Sickness Unto Death, and in that book he defines sin as, as building your identity on anything other than God. Normally, you think of sin as, as breaking the law. But, but think of the Pharisees. They are all about not breaking the law. And, and yet, Jesus condemns them as, as whitewashed tombs. It's because they've taken something good, obeying the law, and they've made it their whole identity. They worship their own obedience, not God. And, and fooling themselves, they move, move further and further away from God and the greatest commandment, to love Him. And that all they're left with is an emptiness wrapped up in a beautiful white package. The answer, of course, the answer, of course, is to love the one worthy of eternal love. John Piper says, of heaven, heaven will be a never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever greater joy in Him. That's heaven. And of hell, Piper says, hell is unspeakably real, conscious, horrible and eternal, the experience in which God vindicates the worth of his glory in holy wrath on those who would not delight in what is infinitely glorious. Keller puts it this way. He summarizes hell. Hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. This, this nature of hell being our own choice of anything other than God at the center of our hearts, our worship, our identity, has been the Christian notion of hell from the earliest theologians, from, from Augustine and Dante, Aquinas, Calvin, and C.S. Lewis, and Piper and Keller. And it's not so much a, a, a fiery screaming, although that is a metaphor for it. It is the isolation of choosing to not recognize God as God 
And it's right here in this passage when Abraham tells the rich man in hell that even would Lazarus rise from the dead to warn people, they won't listen to him just as they haven't listened to Moses and the prophets. They're too invested in building and guarding their own identities. It's been important for me to to know this idea of sin and hell, and I see it like this. We're all addicts. My old pastor growing up at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach used to start every service saying, we're all addicts to sin, forgiven, freed, and redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm so easily distracted from my own identity in Christ. And, And the challenge every day is to remember who I am in Christ. But my right worship, my first love, my greatest desire, my core identity is in Christ. C.S. Lewis says of hell, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they'll not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid. That is what he does. That's what hell is. Keller says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. I... I have to say at the end of (laughs) this, the picture of hell as the fires of eternal punishment is pretty stark, but this biblical understanding of hell to me is, is more frightening still. But it sets the choice of our loves in front of us, and it makes it clear that that God is not the culprit of hell. Rather, it is something we ourselves pursued instead of pursuing him and his glory. You see, understanding heaven and hell helps me understand my own heart. Next, we need an understanding and appreciation of hell to live at peace in this world. Now, this seems to be the opposite of what people would suppose. People think that belief in hell would be divisive. If you believe in hell, you probably think you're going to heaven, and that you must be better than those who are going to hell. And that's simply a a picture of discrimination. But a Christian understanding of hell is that people are not divided by their merit, but by their willingness to concede their own lack of merit for heaven and take on Christ's. Our identity is not in what we have achieved but in what Christ has done for us. And that leaves, that leaves a humility that serves rather than divides. Look at the passage. Abraham, the one in heaven, speaks to the rich person in hell. 
He doesn't address him, address him in some derogatory fashion and call him, you evil sinner. He speaks to him from heaven and calls on him, son. And there's a sadness there, a, a sense of tragedy and loss. Miroslav Volf is an important theologian, and he's a Croatian. And he lived through the wars in the Balkans that have reflected generations and and centuries of hatred between people groups. And, And we know about cycles of violence that just seem to never stop. And we see it in the Middle East, and if you look at the history of Ukraine, you're going to see it there as well. Wolf makes an observation. He says, the cycle of violence is not fueled by a God of judgment, but by a lack of belief in a God of judgment. Otherwise, justice is up to you. And and the cycle continues. But if you believe that, that vengeance belongs to the Lord and he will make things right, it's the only power strong enough to stop the cycle of violence. And more than that, give you a peace where there is no peace. A belief in hell does not divide us. It's the only thing that could keep us from dividing ourselves. It's crucial for the hope of peace in our world and even even in our hearts. Finally, an understanding of the Christian doctrine of hell is crucial to know the love of God. The question started with the statement that the doctrine of hell denies the goodness and love of God. It it doesn't. In fact, it it does the opposite of that. The story in this morning's passage is making an amazing point. It asks the question, what's going to change people's hearts so that they will do what it takes to go to heaven instead of hell? And this, this is the fundamental question we ask in evangelism when we're telling people about Jesus. The rich man wants to send Lazarus back to warn his, his family. And Abraham says he's not going to do that. Moses and the prophets didn't change their hearts. Neither will a miracle like Lazarus be enough to free them from their addiction to sin. Rather, Moses and the prophets point to another one who is going to rise from the dead. This one standing in front of them telling them this story in the first place. If they don't see the answer in him, they're not going to see it in Lazarus. It begs the question, what possibly could help us to see the escape from hell and the path of heaven? Especially these days. It's not primarily fear. It's not the fear of Lazarus coming back from the dead to warn them. It's love. Being loved. Seeing and knowing and feeling and experiencing the enormity of that love is the one thing that will steal our attention away, our love away from our sins, from anything other than the one pouring his love into us, other than God. But it's by an understanding of hell that we can know 
this love and experience the height and depth and infinite breadth of that love. Here's what I mean. Keller tells an old Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones illustration that affected his own life. It's of a man who is house-sitting. And when the owner comes home, he remarks, hey, I, I saw a bill come in while you were away, so I paid it. And it immediately begs the question, which bill? How, how big a bill? If it was a couple of bucks and you did it to save me a late fee, I'm, I'm going to give you a good firm handshake and, and offer to take you out to coffee. But if it was paying off my 30-year mortgage or paying back taxes that I hadn't paid in all the penalties of a decade, of paying a, a crushing credit card debt, I'm going to have a whole different response. Jesus paid a debt for us. And the nature of Jesus' perfection is that God, his, his Father, was at the center of his heart, his true first love. Alone among all people ever, his love for God was pure. His relationship with his father made up the core, the whole of his identity. And yet on the cross, he experienced the fullness of alienation from his father, from God. He suffered the depths of isolation, of abandonment, of condemnation to hell. And you can hear that voicing of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered the consequence of our sin for us. He suffered hell for us. He suffered this so that we could be forgiven, that God's justice and and summary judgment for our sin would be paid. He paid our debt, and so we could know and be freed by his love for us. If you don't believe in hell, then you miss what Jesus did, and you'll miss the, the transforming power of his love. That, that grabs your attention and, and builds a love in your heart for God. The, the love that is eternal life, that is heaven and the glory of God. The question of us is how a good God could create hell and condemn people to it. Keller, in his great book for understanding the legitimacy and the benefit of the Christian faith, uh, the book named Making Sense of God, he tells a story of an atheist friend of his who was doubting his own atheist faith and, and some of its presuppositions. And among the doubts that he had was the question of his belief that doc- the doctrines of hell and salvation were fundamentally unfair. And Keller writes, this doubt my friend said, largely came from the underlying beliefs of his culture. He had a Chinese friend who did not believe in God, but, but who said that if he existed, God certainly would have a right to judge people as he saw fit. And then he realized that his doubt about hell 
was based on a very white, Western, democratic, individualistic mindset that most other people in the world didn't share. To insist that the universe be run like a Western democracy was actually a very ethnocentric point of view, he told me. All of us make idols of our love, of building our own identity, uh, and, and we, we make our identities up from these things. I'm not talking about merely a God-given enjoyment of people and of things. I'm talking about finding our identity, our purpose in them, chasing them all of our lives to give ourselves meaning. Giving ourselves over to them is, is simply making an idol of them. Getting lost in those things is the definition of hell. And the result and results in missing out on the love we can have for God and knowing and welcoming and receiving the love God has for us in all the glory of His Son. Who do you love? Understanding heaven and hell clarifies the issue most important in our lives. And it highlights God's saving love in Jesus Christ. A love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Lord, this is a terrifying topic in our world. Because it, it, it's so devastating. But Lord, when we see it in the light of your scripture and in the light of your love, God, we see your glory. We see your goodness. And, and what it means that you sent your son for us. Lord, help us to see your love and to be transformed by it into those who love you above everything else. And in that love, we see everything in a new way, the light of a new day with joy, that it is a gift from you. God, thank you for your word, even your hard word, and guide us as your children, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.